All right, well, let's begin for tonight. Welcome back to our Wednesday evening study on the Doctrines of Grace. We're going to continue this evening and really get into the study proper, I guess you could say. The past couple of Wednesdays that we've been together, we eased our way into this new study on the Doctrines of Grace by looking at the historical background to the discussion, to the debate between today would be called Calvinism and Arminianism. And a quick side note, if you were unable to be here the past couple of times, uh, Regis is already starting to put them on the website, so you'll be able to find the lessons on the website. I know the first one's already there, the second one should be there soon. And even this one will be on hopefully in the next couple of days, as well as the PDFs attached to it will all be on the website, so just to let you know. But today we get into lesson two on the fall. Overall, this is a study of salvation. As we've said a couple times, both Calvinism and Arminianism are systems of theology which try and make sense of Scripture's teaching on God's role and man's role in salvation. What part does God play? What part does man play? It's, that's the essence of the debate. With this in mind, though, it quickly becomes evident that the right place to start in such a study is not actually with the doctrine of salvation, but with the doctrine of sin. Before understanding the nature of sin's cure, you've got to understand the nature of sin's disease. As with, as with medicine, the source and the cause of disease must be fully understood before you can make the right diagnosis and, and prognosis and lead to a cure, giving proper treatment. Half the church, if not more, have been getting this cold or flu going around. Is it a virus? Is it bacteria? You need to know. If you, if you have a virus and you take antibiotics, it will do you no good. It will do nothing for you. There will be no cure at all. You need to know what's wrong with you, what the problem is, so you can better address, better address it and lead to a cure. And, and so it is with sin and salvation. A fundamental error many make when studying these issues is they want to rush to all the, the, the controversial or catchy to- topics like election, predestination, like let's just Let's just go there. Let's talk about that. That's where the fun debate is. But in reality, you're not going to get that if you don't get sin first. We have to start by understanding sin itself and how sin affects the human condition. And what scripture teaches about salvation, which includes election and predestination, all that stuff, it's all built on the foundation of what scripture teaches about sin and the human condition first. Or, to make it a little simpler, you've got to come to terms with the bad news before you can understand the good news. And sin is, is the bad news. Salvation is the good news. And later, you'll see how a right understanding of sin and the sin problem informs a right understanding of God's role and man's role in salvation. That's where we're, we're getting to. That's where we're trying to get to. We've got to start, though, here with sin, the doctrine of sin. In that regards, where to begin? Well, we're going to go back to the very beginning. Our fundamental question in this and the next few lessons is this. How has sin affected the human condition? How has sin affected the human condition? And to start answering that question this week, next week, we'll, we'll be answering this question. To start, though, we're going to go back today to creation and, more importantly, for our purposes, the fall. Because that's where we learn that sin was not originally a part of the human condition. 
That may seem like a simple conclusion to you, take it for granted, but it is an important baseline fact that must be established. Even in the account of the fall, we start to see how sin changed humanity and all humanity thereafter. So for today, we'll do a Bible study on the fall. You might be thinking, and if you did your, your homework, your assignment from last week, it's, it's actually pretty basic stuff. You might be thinking to yourself, well, I know this, I've studied the fall before, and, and maybe you do, and, that, and that's good. But you can't quite take for granted that everybody knows it, and everybody has studied it before. And either way, it's still the place to start, even if this is just a refresher to you, it's still the place where we have to start to establish from Scripture these foundational facts about the human condition before and after sin entered the world. And so we're going to do that today from Genesis 1 through 3. So if you have your Bible, you can open up to page 1, to uh, Genesis chapter 1. If you're able to do your handout from last week, you should be a little more familiar with Genesis 1 through 3. If not, if you weren't here, if you didn't do it, You'll still be able to follow along. It's a pretty inductive lesson that I gave you. So we're going to go through these questions and add detail to what you studied on your own. Now, just to get started, let's just jump to near the end of chapter one and pick it up with the creation of man and woman. We won't read all of Genesis one through three for now, but how about we start day six? So Genesis one, look at verse 24. Verse 24, then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. So as day six begins, God creates the, basically the, the animals, animals of the earth. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and all over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth. And every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to every thing that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there is evening, and there is morning, the sixth day. So first question, what day did God create man and woman? It's already obvious, day six. We just read that. You'll notice here, what, what strikes you is that God created male and female, man and woman, in his image. What that means, in, in part, is that God made us persons, not like rocks or trees or even fish. We are persons, meaning we have intellect, we have emotion, we have will. Also, we are spiritual beings. We are living spirits. And accordingly, we share with God, who is spirit, his, his attributes, his communicable attributes. He made us like him in, in many respects. 
And finally, we, this verse talks about the passage, how we share over God's role, namely his dominion over creation. God made us to be like the mediators of his dominion over creation. And we, we, God made man and woman to be the, the representative rulers of his creation. Man and woman were the pinnacle of God's creation. Okay, simple enough. We, there's a lot more, but that's not our intent to study that right now. As you saw in verse 31, what was God's verdict concerning his completed creation? Very good. It was very good. And that should stick out because as you read the chapter, verse 4, verse 10, verse 12, verse 18, verse 21, even verse 25, after God completes on each day his work, he says, and it was good. good. Only at the very end, after creating man and woman on day six, does he call his creation very good. And this speaks to the condition of God's initial creation. Was there any sin or evil in creation at this time? Well, no. God's verdict on his completed creation makes that pretty clear. I mean, God being perfectly good could not have looked upon his completed creation as very good if it contained any sin, any evil, any deformity. To the contrary, the verse indicates pretty clearly that there was no sin or evil present in God's creation at that time. So by the ending of day six, there, there was nothing bad. It was all good. In fact, it was very good now that the pinnacle of God's creation, man and woman, were, were there. All things were good. This already, though, speaks to the human condition, which is what we're angling at from these passages. Man was originally created good, meaning free from sin and evil. This would extend to man's very nature. That's part of creation, man's nature, and God saw that was part of very good as well. At creation, man had a pure nature, free from evil, and free from the inclination to evil. That's not true anymore, as we'll, we'll learn of, over time. Today, it's the opposite. We, are, we have a fallen nature, and part of the definition of that is our natures are inclined to evil. We're not inclined toward the good anymore. Like, like a moth to the flame, we are attracted to, inclined toward that which is not good. But that was not the case at first. Man was pure, innocent, free from sin, and inclined to good. Now let's keep going. We're going to jump into chapter 2 now. So that's just getting us up to speed with the creation of man and woman. Some base facts. Get into chapter 2 and by verse 4, it jumps back to day 6 and it rehashes day 6. Gives you a more detailed view of day 6. Particularly God's creation of man and woman and more about what happened on day 6. So let's, let's jump to that. And we're going to read two, chapter 2 verse 4. And following. So let, let's go there. Chapter 2, verse 4. It says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now, no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise up from the earth to water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Verse 9, out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. 
the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So for now, we can pause. Our, again, like I said, this is a longer version, a more detailed version of what was happening in God's creative acts on day six. Verse seven, we see man is formed from the dust. You have dust plus breath equals man, a living being. God takes something material, something immaterial, puts them together with his divine breath and, and creates us, creates life, human life. That also speaks to our nature, our human condition, namely that we, are, we have two parts. We, there are two constituent parts to a human being, material and immaterial, body and spirit, outer and inner. So we, we have an inner man. We'll talk a lot about that inner man, that spirit nature as time goes on. You also notice in verse 9, it, it mentions these two trees. In addition to the bounty of other trees, God created the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We'll see those later, of course. But already God gave man everything he needed. Let's look at verse 10. It says, Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is, is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Avila, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. The bdellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And then notice verse 15. It says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And here we see, should have been a simple observation for you, God's only rule for Adam in the garden to not eat from the tree. Like, okay, there's a tree. It's in the, it's in the midst of the garden, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It probably was, you know, labeled somehow, maybe had a sign on it. But in some way, yeah, flashlights. Adam knew, here's a tree, God let him know, this is it, don't eat from it. If you do, you will surely die. Pretty straightforward in that regard, a very simple command, just don't eat from that tree. But a deeper question that I posed for you, why did God make such a rule? If eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil came with such drastic consequences, have you ever wondered, why did God even put it there? Why why plant the tree? Why put the tree in the garden in the first place? If it's such a deadly tree, why not place it in Antarctica or on the other side of the planet where they could never get to? Why place it in the middle of where they're supposed to live, where they even have a chance to take it and eat from it and die? That sounds dangerous. I mean, clearly God did not want them to eat from this tree. His revealed will it's very clear. He commanded, do not eat from the tree. So there's no disputing his revealed will in that regard. God had good reason for this command. For if they did eat from this tree, they would die. They would surely die. But that still leaves the question, okay, why did God put the tree there and create the tree with such properties that to eat from it means death? And then why did he leave it there and put them in such close proximity to this tree of of the knowledge of good and evil which really is a tree of death you've got the tree of life this is a tree of death that brings forth death so why is it there 
it's kind of like, you know, at our house, we've got the fridge, top of the fridge, cereal boxes, right? You may have that you line up because they don't really fit in the pantry, so you just throw them on top of the fridge. And the kids, they can't reach, but they look and they can see which cereal they want. You've got just like a, a line of boxes that pile up over time as well. Imagine also storing a box of rat poison right there. And it looks like a cereal box, right? It's kind of same shape and size. And you tell your kids, you can freely eat from any of these boxes of cereal. Just don't eat from the box of rat poison or you will surely die. That would be a pretty terrible parent. Why wouldn't you just take the rat poison away? Why, why even put it up there next to their food? Why create the confusion? Why not just throw it away or hide it or lock it up? I mean, it's the same situation, the same dilemma. That would make you think they're a, an unwise or even bad parent. So how do we answer this for God? Why did God leave the tree there? So I'll give you guys a chance to, to chime in. What, what did you put or what would you respond to that? Or how would you respond to that? Why did God leave the, the tree there? Okay, a Joe? A test, Rod says. Just talking to this uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, God is omniscient. He knew that the Adam and Eve would fall. So the plan of salvation was already made. And Jesus Christ was already dead before the foundation of the world. And all the elect that will be saved is written in the book of life even before the creation. So he knew that they would fall. Okay, good. So God knew they were going to fall. It sounds like he has a reason for leaving the tree there. July? Well, I was thinking there's certain attributes that God has, like showing mercy and grace and stuff like that. And how would he show that unless there is sin and some reason for him to show mercy? So it would please the Father to, like before the foundations of the earth, I put that too, to plan for his son to die and then give his son the love gift as a kid. I mean, just all that going together. It's, just, it's kind of strange from our perspective living in this time, but I mean, those attributes, like showing forgiveness. He didn't show forgiveness to the angels. We wouldn't even know that about him unless there was sin. Unless we, you know, if we didn't sin, we would never know about forgiveness. Yeah, so what July said, and, and keep in mind, I'll, I'll re repeat for the sake of the little recording we're doing. But what July mentioned was, you know, God, knowing, leaving the tree there, knowing they would fall, creating, therefore, the need for redemption, and God, to redeem, would put his attributes on display that otherwise never would have been on display, through which he gets glory, like forgiveness, mercy, and grace. Very good. One more, Janet. Yes, and that is if, we, if the tree of uh, the knowledge of good and evil was not there, and we would have all just lived forever in that state, whereas now we get to... You're saying if the tree of life remained there. Yes. Yeah, right. So that, we'll talk about that when he eventually kicks him out of the garden at the end. Right, but I know what you're saying. Yeah. Well, if they had not been tempted and sent by eating that fruit or from the tree, then people would have, they would have multiplied and more people would have come and they would not have died. We would have just populated the earth as is. 
Oh, actually, what you're saying. Yes. Okay. So we didn't have that opportunity to a spiritual life with God. Well, yeah, in a sense, yeah, you could say there's a, a, a chance for experiencing redemption and, and all that comes with it. Yeah. Like, like the angels, they know of no redemption. They're in their initial created state. At the very least, you can. there's an unavoidable conclusion. Whatever your answer is, is, well, God had some purpose for leaving the tree there. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't an oversight. It, he had some purpose for it, for leaving it there. Even though it had a potential for Adam and Eve to eat from it and die. And the only conclusion is that God wanted the tree there for some reason. I mean, all would agree, he, he knew it was there. He had the power to remove it. He didn't. So there, there has to be some intentionality there. there. There is a purpose. Okay, what's the reason? What's the purpose? Well, the immediate reason is like what Rod mentioned, namely a test for Adam and Eve. James 1 makes clear God does not tempt his people to evil, but he does test his people, his children, all the time. And the tree, the presence of the tree, plus the command not to eat from it, was... Uh, functioning like a, a first test for God's creation. Would they obey God as king and choose life, or would they go their own way? And you could talk more about the nature of that test later. That's not our intention right now. But already God's sovereignty is on display. Like Joe and others pointed out, did God know that they could eat from the tree and everything that would happen thereafter? Well, yeah, we do not doubt his omniscience. So God knew what could have happened. Did God know what was going to happen? What would happen? That they were going to disobey. They were going to eat. And then the rest of history as we know it, all the suffering, all the evil, did God know that was going to happen? Yes, he knew that too. With his omniscience, we believe he knows the future and all future possibilities. And he knew that was going to happen. Did God have the power to stop them from eating? Or to not even put the tree there in the first place? Yes, he does. We believe in his omnipotence as well. And did God intervene to stop them? Knowing better and having the power, did he intervene to stop them? No. And so it really funnels us to an unavoidable conclusion. Although God's revealed will was for them not to eat his hidden or secret counsel, included a plan for them to eat and for them to die for some greater purpose. Now, we know that God is good. He is not evil. So this must have been a greater good purpose. Now, after the fact, and this is, I think, what July was alluding to, we can see that the grander purpose God had in allowing the tree in the garden. We know that by allowing man to sin and to fall, God could initiate a plan of redemption through which he could put on display his attributes, which would have otherwise remained unknown. His love, in a sense, his mercy, his grace, even his justice and wrath toward the lost. God created all things for his glory. God's plan of redemption is for his glory. And allowing man's fall fit into that greater plan of his glory. If you don't understand that the concept of God's glory the, the nature of God's glory, you might struggle with this as to, is that really the greater good? But as you understand God and his glory, his value and worth being supreme, you realize that is the greatest good in existence is God and, and his glory. Quick side note, a while ago, I preached a three-part series on God's glory. 
It's on our website under the topical section if you just just for your own edification. Joe, you're itching with a hand there. Yeah, I forgot where I heard this, but uh, God the Father will to give His Son group of believers, and He first of all put all their names in the book like even before the foundation of the world. And uh, uh, for that reason, the plan of self-salvation already set up, and Jesus Christ was what called the plan of God was playing from the foundation of the world. Yeah, we'll talk about that later. So what Joe is mentioning was <coughs> the, you could say that, the hidden counsel of the triune God before creation even began, initiating this plan of creation and redemption before God even made anything. And, uh, well, yeah, we'll get into that later when we talk about the, the, the order of salvation and stuff like that in, in the doctrine of salvation. But yeah, there was, Scripture does reveal there was something between the triune God in initiating and creating this plan of salvation that would come. Yeah. So, God created the tree, left it there, because he had a a purpose for it. That's the answer. He had some plan, some purpose for it, some purpose in allowing sin into his good creation. didn't have to, but he has some purpose in allowing sin and evil to exist. And the purpose is, ultimately, a greater good the greatest good, even his glory. Keep in mind, God did not make or coerce rather Adam and Eve to eat from the tree. They did that of their own free will. No one disputes that Adam and Eve had truly free wills before the fall. Yet through God's infinite sovereignty, Adam and Eve acted in accordance with God's ultimate plan. They did so freely, but they did exactly what he had planned for them to do. That is a, a, a topic called concurrence, which we'll also save for later. That gets pretty advanced, but that will be when we talk about predestination. Now, why is this relevant? Well, it's already introducing us to God's sovereignty and the responsibility he bears for his choices. And here's where I'm going with this. Later, we'll learn about Arminian theology when it comes to predestination. <coughs> And they believe God did not unconditionally elect people before creation. God did not write anyone's name in the book of life before creation, per se, unconditionally. Rather, God conditionally chose who he was going to save by looking forward into time and seeing who would choose him of their own free will. That's their view of foreknowledge and conditional election. God elects people. He chooses them conditionally based on their foreseen faith. This is before God creates. He looks forward into his potential future creation and sees who will choose him, and then he chooses them, and they are the elect. And we'll get into that in detail later. One of the primary reasons they believe in this view of foreknowledge is to get God off the hook. If unconditional election is true, meaning God elects people and chooses to save them just by his own will. Well, that means God is to blame for billions of people not being chosen and therefore going to hell. There's, there's no other way around it, they would say. 
God chose to create the world, and he chose to create a world where billions of people would go to hell, and he didn't choose all of them, and they think that makes God a moral monster, and so they, they reject that view of God's election. <coughs> At the same time, though, the Armenian is, is still on the hook. They face the exact same problem, although we wouldn't say it's a problem. They face the exact same reality, though. In fact, they make it worse by diminishing God. Because think about this. If that's true, this view of foreknowledge that they have, that God merely looked forward into time, what did God see in this world that he foresaw this potential world he was going to create? He saw the vast majority, billions of people, freely not choosing him and thereby sentencing themselves to hell. Yet God still chose to create such a world. I mean, he didn't have to. No one was binding him and saying, you have to create this world. Why didn't God create a universe where he foresaw every single person freely chose him of their own free will? Why didn't he create that world? Or if God foresaw so many people were going to go to hell, why, why leave the tree in the garden? How about just take that out? Problem solved. You see, you can't get around the fact that God being the creator is still ultimately on the hook for everything that happens. Now, God is just fine being on your your hook. He he has no problem with being on your hook. Who is man to answer back to God? But this is God's sovereignty. This is his sovereign plan and creation. And their view actually doesn't do anything to, to answer for that or to answer for God. All it does is actually diminish God and diminishes his sovereignty and his will, which scripture does not. Now, we're not going to get into that for now. I know I'm previewing you uh, a lot of things, but already you can see how this pops up even back in creation. In the end, there's no escaping God's sovereignty over his creation. Now, look, God is not evil. He's not the doer of evil. But the existence of evil, sin, and the fall were a part of his sovereign creation, his sovereign plan for creation. Now, at this point, our intention is not to delve further into God's relationship to evil and creation. But suffice it to say for now, Scripture everywhere describes God as perfectly righteous. All sin and evil is attributed to Satan, demons, and and humans. That's where it comes from. Although a part of God's plan, they brought evil into this world of their own will. And, and scripture places all blame on Satan, demons, and humans. Now, Joe, question or comment? Uh, yeah, let's see. Okay, no worries. If you think about it, we'll come back to you. Now, speaking of, we said earlier, God does not tempt his people. Satan does. Satan does tempt his people, and... Of no coincidence, we find Satan the tempter all of a sudden in the garden. You could ask the same question uh, of Satan's presence as we did of the tree, by the way. Why did God allow Satan to commandeer a snake and and tempt Eve? He could have stopped that as well. He knew that was going to happen as well. All the same questions apply to Satan's presence in the garden. God could have stopped it. He knew it was going to happen, yet he didn't. Why? Well, same same thing. It's part of his greater plan. So, do you remember your question or comment, Joe? Yeah. I think uh, everything that God does, he always starts to bring glory to his name. Yes. 
Yeah, everything God does, he does to bring glory to his name. That is that is right. That's absolutely true. And that, that ties into why he's allowing what we see happen with Satan and Adam and Eve. So let's, we got to keep moving here. Let's go to chapter three now. And let's read a bit about the fall. We've read about creation to a measure. Let's read about the fall. And that's in chapter three, after God made Adam and Eve. The rest of chapter two covers the creation of Eve. We'll, we'll just skip that for the sake of time for now. Chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in, that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. All right, let's let's rattle through some of these questions here. What was the nature of Satan's temptation to Eve? How did he tempt her? Some responses. Yeah, he introduced doubt to God's word. I mean, God is truth. There should never be any doubting what he has said. But he just sowed that seed of doubt in God's word and also doubt in God's character. His first words to her were so as to suggest that God, maybe he's not really so good because, look, he's withholding something from you. He's not giving you all that is good. Of course, Satan failed to mention all that God had permitted and provided for Adam and Eve. I mean, he, he gave them every tree that was good for food. He just withheld one, and he had a good reason for doing so. He gave them more than they needed. Satan didn't mention that. Let's just not mention what God has given. Let's just focus on the one thing he hasn't and make you want it as if it's good. This is evident in his response. We see also Satan telling Eve that she surely would not die. He knew full well they would spiritually die in that day, just like he had already experienced a spiritual death. Anyway, verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Why did Eve eat the fruit? Why'd she do it? Because it looked good. Because it looked good? Because she, she wanted to. All of a sudden, it became good. Before, God said, don't eat from it. And for her purposes, then, it was not good. That's, that's a no-go zone. That's not good for me. God said, don't eat or you will die. It's not good. But through Satan's deception and temptation, he led her to believe, oh, this is good. And then she did it because she wanted to. Many would see a parallel here to 1 John 2.15, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. She saw it, it was pleasing to the eyes, desirable. And so she took, she ate it. She believed the lie that God, maybe, maybe God hadn't been fully good to them. I mean, he was withholding something good. I, I want that. I want what is good. Knowledge of good and evil, that seems good. She believed the lie that God had withheld something good. And so she ate. And she also ate... Because Adam didn't stop her. So the next question, where was Adam in all this? If Eve ate first, why does scripture place the primary blame for the fall on Adam? 
Well, verse 6, at the end, where was Adam? <coughs> Excuse me. Right next to her the, the whole time. We, we're given the impression that Adam was there the whole time. He, he watched and observed this interchange or exchange between Satan and Eve. He was just observing. He didn't say anything, just, just watching, eventually cooperating. He was there. She was deceived. She ate. She's like, hey, pretty good. Have some. And he took from her and, and he ate as well. Now, who, who ate first? Eve. She, she shot first. Why does all the blame fall on Adam for the fall? July? He was made first. He was made first. Okay, July? Yeah, Adam made first and made the head of Eve, that the leader, the protector of Eve, given the responsibility to keep her from evil. And also to, well, where did Eve even hear the command not to eat of the tree? From Adam. I mean, there's no indication that God repeated the command per se. I guess it's possible. But from the text, all we know is God gave the command to Adam first, and he would have had to repeat it to Eve. July? Yeah, yeah. That he, the fact that he didn't stop her, we'll talk about that in a second. July, all right, Janet. It's just that he's, he was not deceived. Yeah, and that's, that's actually the point here. So like you guys are saying, back in chapter 2, we learned Adam was created first. He also was created as the head. Eve was literally made from him. And God made Adam the head of his wife, meaning the leader. So it was his job to lead, to protect his wife. In this case, Adam failed to do both. He failed to lead. He failed to protect. Why was Adam's sin worse? Well, later scripture confirms Eve was tempted. Eve was deceived. Adam was not deceived. That's a simple but essential distinction. Eve was deceived. Adam was not deceived. Think about the distinction. She didn't know better. She At first, she was led into a lie by Satan. Now, that doesn't get her off the hook. She still sinned, of course. There's not, there's not an excuse. Ignorance is not an excuse, or deception is not an excuse. At the same time, though, hers was not a willful rebellion against God's command. She was deceived. Adam, however, was not deceived. He knew what he was doing. He knew this was not good, yet he ate anyway. And being the head... His was an open, willful rebellion against God and his word. So Eve, she was deceived into thinking the tree was good. Adam knew the tree was not good. He was not deceived into thinking the tree was good, yet he still ate. That's a fundamental distinction. First Timothy 2, 13 and 14. It says, For it was Adam who was created uh, first, and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived. But the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. This is why Adam had the greater sin, the chief sin. And we will see later how, given the headship of Adam, which extends to all of his descendants as well, to all of humanity, he is our federal head, how this sin act, this rebellion, 
brought all of mankind thereafter into rebellion against God. That will be next time. We'll trace the effects of Adam's sin to his descendants the next time we gather. But, okay, so you got that right now. Let's keep going. So, after eating the fruit, let's do verse 8. Oh, no, verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. There is a lot of material in there that's just you know begging for sermon and preaching, and I've done some of that in the past. We'll just leave it right there, just the, establishing the basic facts. After they ate, their eyes were opened. They immediately found guilt and then shame. The shame had, a, uh, from the beginning, a visual representation in, in their, their genetic you know, private parts. And so they covered their shame with loin coverings. They sought to cover their shame. And the guilt was too much, leading them to hide from God's presence. They, they already sensed a separation from God's presence. And God, of course, knew what happened. His question was merely rhetorical for their own sake. Yet Adam continues in his fallen state by blaming Eve, the woman that you gave me, in the way he even blames God. It's like, you gave her to me. And then Eve passes the blame off to Satan, and, uh, and so on we go. Now the question I had for you, though, is after eating the fruit, Adam and Eve did not immediately physically die. That's what Satan said. He said, you surely will not die. So was he right? Why was he not right? Yeah, see, there, that's a half-truth. And half-truths said that way are become whole lies. Indeed, they did not physically die that day. They would. In fact, only by God's grace did they not. God, if he were only just, they would have been dead on the spot the second they, they ate. Only by God's grace did he not do that. Did he let them live? Why? Well, the same reason for all of this. He has a greater plan in letting them live. In fact, if God were just, he'd just kill them, start over. Right? Until someone finally gets it right. And there would be no fall. But he didn't do that. He let them live knowing that they would produce a whole race of sinners who would do a lot of bad things. Why? Okay, we have questions now. Why did God leave the tree? Why did he let Satan in? Why didn't he kill Adam and Eve to stop the, the waterfall of suffering that would flow from them? All the same reason. He has a plan. He has a purpose in all things. They didn't physically die, but they did spiritually die in that day. Just like Satan had, they were spiritually cut off from God. In addition, a change took place in their natures on that day with their spiritual death. But like I said, before they were inclined to good, now they were inclined to evil. Ironically, their eyes were opened, but they became blind. And we know, though, Jesus later would come significantly opening the eyes of the blind physically and spiritually, enabling them to see the truth once again. 
Now, let's read the curse before we finish up here. Chapter 3. You, you know God's response. We'll, we'll read it to remind ourselves. Verse uh, 14 and following. Let's read the curse that God pronounces on them for their sin. Verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and the dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Verse 17. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Okay, observation. How did God curse woman as a result of the fall? What was the curse on woman? Pain and childbirth. Birth, rather. Also, she would oppose that the headship of her husband leading to strife in this one flesh union. A necessary union for procreation and for our natural desires, yet it would be a union with conflict, with strife built into it. How did God curse man as a result of the fall? And how did the curse on man affect the earth itself? Thorns and thistles. thistles. So the curse on man first came through indirectly through a curse on the earth through the production of, of thorns, thistles, which represent what? I mean, it's real, but what's that? What's what's the message there? What's God saying? Well, July. Before food was provided easily for them, they didn't have to work hard for it. Now they have to work hard in manner to toil and labor just to eat and provide for his family. So it's kind of like a double curse. Yeah. It is a double curse. You mentioned the, the nature of toil, and that, that is essential to, to man's curse. God gave them every plant, for food, they had to cultivate the garden, but it would have been easy, easy gardening, you know. Now, they're going to have to work hard just to live. They will have to strive and toil just to scrape some food off the surface of the planet. It would not be easy. The ground itself was cursed. Side note, in Hebrew, the word for ground and the word for Adam are almost the same. And there's a, a intentional by God play on words of Adam. He was, he's literally dust. And he's taken from dust, and now he's going to return to dust because of his sin. So the curse on Adam was a life of toil, hardship, and eventually physical death, which pertains to all, all people. It also was a curse on the ground. The once good creation will now include things that are not good, like disease, famine, disaster, and so forth. Those things were not part of God's very good creation, but now, now they are. And so also keep in mind, at the fall, not only did a change of nature take place in man, but a change in nature took place in nature, in creation. The earth literally changed. God's created order changed. He did this, obviously, sovereignly and, and supernaturally. He changed the created order of earth after the fall. 
things happen that were not part of the original creation. Both ourselves and creation have are fallen in that regard. No wonder in Romans 8, Paul describes us groaning and longing with creation for our redemption, personifying creation itself, longing for its redemption before God so that it, the curse is lifted off the earth, which Christ will do. Another question, how did God's curse on Satan affect mankind? Verse 15, how did the curse on Satan affect mankind? What does he say there? What's the key word? Beginning of verse 15. Enmity. Enmity. There will be another plane of strife, another level of strife. Not only will man have to strive and labor against the ground to live, but spiritually there will be strife with with Satan and demons, with spiritual forces. God is is promising a perpetual war, enmity, enmity rather, between Satan and thereby demons and the woman and, and their seed, and the seed of the woman after her. All people are, are locked into a spiritual struggle against Satan and demons, and it makes life bad. It makes life worse, of course. Now there is a shroud of good news, or a shred, we could say, of good news, Despite his judgments, what hope did God give Adam and Eve concerning their new spiritual conflict? Verse 15, you guys know this. It's the promise of the seed who would, although be bruised on the heel by the serpent, would himself crush the serpent on the head. This verse, chapter 3, verse 15, it's known as the first mention of the gospel in the Bible, the good news. You've got bad news. This chapter is all bad news. This is the start of the bad news. But even in the bad news, God gives a little ray of good news. The hope that there would be a seed of the woman who would defeat Satan. Though the seed himself would be harmed, bruised on the heel, he would ultimately triumph, crushing the serpent on the head. And we know through later revelation, this is speaking of Christ, who is born of a woman. Literally a seed of Eve, a descendant of Eve who indeed defeated Satan on the cross, though himself bruised, made to suffer, but not fatally. You'll notice, though, in this, in this verse, this little preview of salvation, man has no role. This is God's deal. God is redeeming his fallen creation, and he's doing so through a seed of the woman, who, yes, would be a man, but he's also God, as we know. <laughs> The point I'm making, though, this is God's work. God is providing this plan of salvation, and we know Christ being the God-man, God is doing this salvation. The defeat of Satan and the restoration of creation would be God's work. There's no mention of man's role in salvation here, which we'll see play out later. A few more questions, and we'll finish up and kind of bring this to a conclusion here. Let's finish the chapter. Verse 20. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, 
He stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, you can't help but noticing verse 21. It, it sticks out because it seems like, why is this even here? Why, why mention this? It's such a strange little fact. But I know you guys have heard this before. What's the significance of God clothing Adam and Eve in verse 21? <clears throat> someone knew. Someone knew. Sarah. Yeah. Why did God do it? Why even clothe them? Wages of sin is death. Yeah, well, it was because they're cold. Shame. No, it's not because they're cold per se. They had new shame. They had new guilt because of their sin. And God was providing a representation of, of a covering over their sin, guilt, and shame. It would be a covering for them, providing, I'm sure, some comfort in the world. So you don't have to sit down on a jagged rock. But... At the same time, there's clear, symbolic, purposeful uh, reason that God had behind this to cover their sin, to cover their shame. And he did so at a cost. The cost was blood. The cost was life. A life given for a life received. That animal, whatever it was, had to die and its blood shed to make a covering for their sin and shame. A perfect picture. The first picture of God's redemption, God's plan of redemption. Did they earn this? Did they deserve this? No, they, they, they did not. That they earned and deserved only death. And they would receive physical death, but already God is showing them grace and mercy, not giving them what they deserve, giving them what they don't deserve to cover their shame. What a great picture already of his salvation, which we know, uh, whereby entirely of his grace, he would sacrifice and shed the blood of his own son, to provide this ultimate covering for our sin, whereby we can be restored to God's presence and fellowship with him once again. We are merely the recipients of this gift of salvation. Man, What is man's role in this picture of salvation? It is simply to receive and say thank you. We just get life by grace and just say thanks because you didn't do anything to earn it or deserve it or to affect it. One more outcome of the fall. Last question. What was another outcome of the fall? They were expelled from the garden. It was separation from God. And this really summarizes the ultimate problem of sin. We're kind of out of time, so we'll leave it at that. There's, there's more we could say with the fall, but I think we've covered enough to give us a foundation here. This really summarizes the sin problem. Death means separation. They would die physically, separate a body and soul once again making us incomplete. They would also die spiritually, which is a separation of them as persons from God himself. And that's the worst death. That's the curse. That's the problem. That's the bad news. Thankfully, Christ died. The solution has come. We have the good news, but this is the bad news from where we begin. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Is that also part of verses um, that they, it says, now lest you be cut his hand, I'll take also the tree of life and eat from them forever. Would that be a reason, another reason God expelled us from the garden? Because then we can't live forever, and it follows his plan that he had. Because then we can't, you can't live forever? We can't, if, if 
Adam and Eve couldn't eat from the tree of life, then they couldn't live forever. Because if they stayed in the garden, then conceivably they could have eaten from the tree of life and live forever. And God, that was part of God's plan, was not to have us live forever because that way he can show his glory by saving us. Yeah, so the, the question or comment was, or question, basically, you know, what, what's the nature of this saying in verse 22 where another reason he kicked them out was that they wouldn't, which is pretty explicit in the text. So yes, that is uh, the, one of the primary reasons he kicked them out, that they would not have access any longer to the tree of life whereby they would live forever. Now keep in mind, though, they're going to live forever one way or another, heaven or hell, right? In their fallenness, they're going to live forever in hell. There's a view here, which I actually do subscribe to. I think you can find some backing for it later in Revelation 21, 22, where why did God bar them access from the tree of life? The, the theory, it's not explicit, but the theory is that in their fallen state, if God allowed them to eat from the tree, they would thereby live forever in their fallen state. It's a, a condemnation to, to eat from the tree of life, to now live forever in fallenness without any chance of, of redemption. Um, so God barring them from that, even as an act of mercy, whereby he could redeem them, because later that tree of life pops up in Revelation 21, 22, the new heavens and new earth. And uh, uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far as to say that, you know, literally eating of the tree, we have to continually nourish off the tree to, to gain our eternal life. But there is a picture in Revelation, I think it's 22, of, of the nations being healed by the fruit of the tree of life continually. And so there, there is something there. It's, that's a part of mystery. But there is something there where God did not want them in their fallen state to have access because I think it would be a, a greater curse than, than he wanted. It would disable a chance for redemption. That's a theory, but I, I do buy that um, as being part of the explanation for him, barring them access from the tree of life until when is access granted again after redemption is complete and we can partake of the tree and live forever in a glorified state instead of a damned state. Okay, so in, in reflection, let me kind of bring it to a closer. Genesis 2 and 3. They clearly teach that sin was not a part of the original human condition. God did not create sin, nor was sin inherent in man's original makeup. It was not a part of man at creation. It was not a part of man's physical nature. So we can already say one thing. Our physical bodies are not inherently sinful. Our, our physical flesh and bones are not evil in and of themselves. Sin, rather, came into being as a spiritual or, or metaphysical entity. Now, it, it has affected our bodies. Now our flesh decays and dies. But that doesn't mean our, our, our actual flesh itself is evil. God created the human body good. So that, that's already an important conclusion. Now, speaking of the flesh which the New Testament refers to our actual, our inner nature, we can say that the flesh is not sin, but sin now dwells within the flesh, and the flesh submits to it in weakness, and it decays the outer flesh. I'll kind of say that again. Because of this fall, we can say that sin itself, this presence of sin, inclination to evil, dwells within the flesh, our inner man, and our flesh submits to it in its weakness, and it leads to the decay of the outer flesh. This is what sin has done to our, our personhood. And so the result is death, physical and spiritual. 
which includes an eternal separation from the goodness and presence of God, just like Adam and Eve were barred from the goodness and presence of God. Now, understanding this fall of humanity into sin, it is the necessary starting point for tackling the question, how has sin affected the human condition? So far, we've learned sin was not originally a part of the human condition, but it entered the world through the rebellion of the first pair. This left Adam and Eve in need of redemption. From where would this redemption come? From God, from man, from both? Well, that's told later in Scripture, but already, even in Genesis 3, there is a strong suggestion this would be God's work and God's role in salvation would be supreme. Remember, that's our ultimate question, right? God's role, man's role in salvation. Already we have quite the picture. God's going to be doing the initiating in this work of salvation, although that's still to be seen. Before we get to that study of redemption, though, we need to study the sin problem even further. In particular, now we have to ask, how did Adam and Eve's sin affect their descendants? We've seen how it affected them. They were cursed as individuals. But already we can see how that curse would affect their seed. And so we need to know more. What were the ripples? What were the after effects of the fall? Adam and Eve needed redemption. What about their kids? Does that mean their kids would need redemption? Or do they start off with a clean slate? What happens after this fall for their descendants? We have to talk about that. And we'll talk about that next time when we talk about original sin. This is where we get into that the concept of original sin. You have your handout for it for next week. Uh, side note, next week we're actually off. We're down at Shepherd's Conference, so we always take that week off. So there's no Wednesday night next week. It's probably good news. This is a long handout. And this is, uh, especially when you get in Romans 5, it, it, can ta- it can be challenging. So you've got two weeks to do it. So uh, do your homework, do that handout. Two weeks, we'll come back and talk about original sin. Well, we're out of time. Let me close. Any final questions, you can come to me after. But let me close this in a word of prayer for now. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for this evening. To fellowship together with the saints, especially in your word, dwelling in your word, is always a rich time for us, reminding us of, of the truth we need to bear in our lives every day. Reminded of our own sin, Lord, that we, we would have done no better than Adam and Eve fallen prey to the same temptation and the same rebellion. We confess that sin is in our own hearts now and, and the presence to, to will and to choose sin is there, Lord. We thank you for your grace through which you sent Christ to redeem us and to change us. Now, now we can know new life. We can know good. We can now choose good and, and we can know life eternal, Lord. We see how our sins separated us from you, but we rejoice all the more in the Savior who, through his death, through his blood, made a covering for our own sin and shame, Lord. We, we, we recognize that. We affirm that. And we praise you for that covering through which we can be redeemed and, and reconciled to you once again. We look forward to that new heavens and new earth where we will dwell with you, dwell with the Lamb forever, covered, made clean, made righteous by that blood, and singing your praises forever, Lord. We want to do that now and lift up our lives to you now. Thank you for this redemption and continue to, to teach us from your word as we continue. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.